Welcome to the World of Wisdom podcast. My name is Amit Paul, and uh, for today's conversation, I have like a little bit of butterflies. I'm, I'm, I was a little bit nervous, you know, coming into it even, and then uh, you showed up on the screen, and and you just have this lovely presence, uh, and I'm really humbled and honored to have you on the podcast, Daniel Christian Walsh. Welcome. Thanks for inviting me, Amit, and um, yeah, pl pleasure to be here. Uh, I, I, Love the work of so many of the people you had conversations with, so you got me quite quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I did. I'm, I'm, I'm very flattered. And um, actually, I, I um, start by my the question that I always ask because uh, I don't uh, want to do or place you in a box. So rather, I'd let you yourself uh, introduce yourself, um, asking or answering the question of uh, who are you, Daniel Christian Wall? Somebody who hates being put in a box. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but that also means that I don't really want to take up a huge amount of time um, answering that question because uh, I've done a lot of different things. Um, but who am I? I'm, I'm a human being who's understood that being truly human can only happen in deep relationship with the rest of life. and. Um, that my health and the health of those who I love depends deeply on the health of the wider community of life that I'm part of. And I started as a biologist because I thought that that way I could understand that community better Then realized that um, spending my life studying whales and dolphins wouldn't necessarily help the whales and the dolphins. Um, and therefore, I left science a little bit disheartened with the quantitative focus of science that, that, that ignores any, anything that isn't expressible in a p-value and statistical significance. And um, then ended up, after a stint as a scuba diving instructor and, and traveling the world, realizing that that was too hedonistic and wanting to set up an environmental education center and eco-village in, in the early 2000s. Um, and at that point, realizing that I, I didn't have enough background to, to do such a thing and found out about a master's at Schumacher College in holistic science that was addressing all these issues I had with science, um, being too reductionist. And that really changed my life, not only because I learned about complexity theory, chaos theory, and um, a, a new depth of evolutionary science that wasn't focused on, on competition as the driver of evolution, but also because I met some of the pioneers of the, the ecological design movement that made me understand that design was actually the way that we put worldviews into action. And, and so I did a PhD on that called Design for Human and Planetary Health. And yet again was not feeling comfortable in academia because I couldn't get the kind of transdisciplinary work that I wanted to do funded. And so stepped out again, worked at Finthorn College for a while at, at an eco-village in the north of Scotland, um, bringing universities to this amazing 50-year, um, now 60-year-old um, experimental community that, that, that has wind farms and local currencies and eco-homes and, and community-supported agriculture, where you, but also has a new way of relating to each other and to life and to modern human life that, that the students simply by being there, ended up learning so much more than they could in the classroom. And um, yeah, we've been experimenting with the theories that I developed in my PhD for the last uh, 15, 16 years. And um, 
reformulated some of them on the basis of that experimentation into a book called Designing Regenerative Cultures, which came out in 2016. Um, and since then, I'm somewhat co-responsible with a bunch of other people um, for this meme or this word regeneration suddenly being in everybody's mouth. But um, now we have the hard work of actually filling it with deeper meaning because a lot of people just jump on that adjective and um, substitute sustainable with regenerative and um, don't really understand that that's not productive at all. So yeah, um, I'm a family father. Uh, I have a little daughter that's five years old. Um, I'm the custodian of 400 trees and a small piece of land on the island of Mallorca. And um, I'm trying to work less and less in this virtual and international sphere and more and more on building deeper community resilience and, and, and the capacity to meet what's coming in my local community and on the island that, that um, I call home. I leave it at that. It's long enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much for the introduction. I'm, I'm wondering where to take us from here now, actually, because there were so many things. Um, but actually, one of the things that I'm thinking a lot about is this um, global versus local um, compromise that, that we tend to do. And uh, I mean, for myself, I just moved to Iceland and don't have much local connection yet, although I feel very connected to the land itself, but, but I'm still finding the community and like making my way into the, into the context here. And, and then I've heard you speak of that balance as well, like with regards to solutions and, and, and I guess scaling comes into that as well with, with global solutions and um, in the regenerative or you know, people that aim to be regenerative or in that community, there is a lot of talk about global solutions and large scale solutions. And, and there's a lot of work being done also over there by some. And then you have another community, which is very local, very much on the ground and really working in the, with the hands in the dirt. Um, how do you, how do you balance those two or like, how do you think about it? Well, I think it's actually right. One of the, the crux of the issues uh, issue is, is that even the word solutions um, is not something that regenerative thinking really foregrounds. Um, so when you hear people talking about solutions, uh, particularly scaling up solutions and then using the word regenerative, you're almost certainly paying attention to kind of the earlier adopters of the meme who haven't really understood that it's not just the replacement of an adjective from, for marketing. Um, so yes, particularly in the, in the food industry, there's a lot of conversation around regenerative this and how do we scale it up and solutions for the world. But one of the, the critiques of um, kind of business as usual sustainability practice and how it is, how working regeneratively is different from sustainability practice. That doesn't mean that that there aren't amazing people who've dedicated th three or four decades to working in sustainability and, and maybe some of them even in a regenerative way. But in general, when we work on these issues, we, we look for problems and then we define those problems ever more deeply and we get the experts from different disciplines in even to look at the problem from different angles. 
And then we bring the designers and the engineers in to do a sort of hackathon, design sprint, whatever you want to call it, to hothouse these um, problems, these wicked design problems and find solutions. And then we pitch those solutions to a bunch of angel investors or um, vulture capitalists. And um, they then say, okay, let's um, scale up these solutions. And then we're in the difficult situation that we're trying to fit generalized, like solutions that have been derived from general patterns and um, abstractions, the, the abstract problem definition, into specific places with specific cultures and specific people and specific histories. Mm. And then we're surprised that it's not working. And on top of it, we're trying to throw lots of money at it and scale it up without attention to that issue that you were asking towards. What is appropriate scale? Where in this nested wholeness that connects each individual cell to an organ, to a body, to a family, to a community, to a bioregion, to an ecosystem and, and, and the biosphere, where, like, an in interference at any of those scales affects all other scales. So even the separation between global and local is somewhat mind-made. Um, it's, it's not real. And um, what I'm more and more understanding in, over the last 20 years of studying sustainability and, and, and regeneration and planetary health is that our globalized system has been built by the dominant culture that sees culture and nature as other. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't pay attention to the way that nature scales. Nature scales out. It doesn't scale up. It doesn't say, oh, wonderful, that cell is a really good one. Let's make it bigger. It, it divides and makes another one of that cell. And, and so um, to fit the human presence on Earth back into life's planetary process of generating conditions conducive to life, we need to pay vital attention on how we fit back into the biomes, bioregions, ecosystems that we inhabit. And I believe that by healing places, local communities and bioregions, one at a time, but everywhere, and enabling other people to do the same thing in the place they call home, we can scale out what a lot of people would call solutions. There's, there's nothing wrong with solutions. It's just mm. the danger is when you think solutions, you go into the abstract educated pattern that we all have of, of defining in the abstract and then fi finding solutions in the abstract. But what I've learned from working with, with um, Regenesis Institute and, and also the work with, of, of Carol Sanford is that the regenerative way of working with these issues is to reduce complexity, not by abstraction, but by going into the specific, into the real case with real people in a real place. And suddenly, all these what we normally call problems, these issues, do show up, but they show up with a human face and a cultural context of meaning or lack of meaning and a specific ecosystem with its wonderful, unique conditions in terms of daylight hours we were just talking that <laughs> daylight hours in Reykjavik aren't 
um, so abundant at this time of year. Mm-hmm. But it, it's an enabling constraint. It creates a different, unique pattern of life in Iceland. And, and therefore, a regenerative approach would say in all of that, there is a unique potential of the people in your place and the ecosystem in your place. And when you then work these issues, stroke problems, out of the potential of the specific, then suddenly you don't have a wicked problem anymore. You have wicked potential. You you suddenly see that, wait a minute, if if we repattern how we meet human needs at this scale, we would be more resilient in an uncertain, brittle supply chain, increasingly catastrophic world where economic systems and climate systems and ecosystems are collapsing all over the place. Um, But we also build the capacity to keep responding to an unforeseeable future because we're, we're working at a scale where we're not just finding solutions, but manifesting potential through human and human nature relationship or more than nature relationship. So it's the deepening into when you work that way, you, you can't just choose your favorite collaborators on a global abstract space and have Zoom conversations with them. No, but you have to deal with all the diversity and all the political spectrum and all the diversity of opinions that your place holds. But that's what we need to learn. We need to learn how to hold the diversity in our human communities, not as a reason for discord and and, and division, but as part of life's potential to be innovative because mm. we can learn from these perspectives and in the in the process of integrating them and, and, and really meeting local issues collectively and collaboratively, we we do so much more than just finding solutions for a problem. We're building human relationships, we're building relationships with place, we're building capacity to keep innovating together. And in a volatile world, that's what we need. Mm. Because I mean, what I what I saw, which I haven't really thought about before, but of course, the this type of abstraction that you're talking about with regards to solutions on the global scale, then um, that we're so enamored with. I mean, then then it typically goes into the actual. So, like when you design the solution, then the the prerequisite is that it's supposed to be abstract. It's supposed to be scalable to one billion people or whatever it is. And so, so it's it's like a feedback loop. I mean, it's not it's not two different constraints, but it actually feeds back into the. Um, and, and also looking, you know. all these like Earthshot price and they, they, I mean I'm, I, the difficulty when when naming all these well-meaning attempts to respond to what is a global crisis a, con- a set of converging crises uh-huh, um, is I, I I deeply believe that the people involved with for example the Earthshot price or the people involved in the the COP process that has just come to an end again. I, I, I don't even bother giving my energy to the COP process anymore because I, it's so deeply enamored with this um, trying to find solutions that, that you can then scale out and finding the investors to put behind those solutions. And, and then on top of it, they're trying to create financial mechanisms to fund all this how do we scale it out and up the, all these solutions? Mm. And and we lose so much specificity of place, so much um, local feedback loops that will 
allow us to understand whether the solution actually fits. And of course, there are brilliant technological innovations that will help millions and billions of people if we make them accessible to people. But we do need to also really think, because in this solution thinking and in this feedback looped, like um, self-fulfilling prophecy of, of only sending finance to people who can pitch yeah. in three in 90 seconds a solution to a bunch of investors uh-huh. we we just create very piecemeal answers to a complex cluster of issues that actually needs to match the our response needs needs to match the complexity of of those issues and and we can only really do that by doing so in unique situations with unique people working with their potential to participate in co-creating a solution. And if we if we do it in the abstract, then it will always run into the problem that that it will be commercialized and, and, and right now with all these nature positive solutions and all this language where 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 we're not even understanding yet how dangerous carbon myopia is with regard to responding to climate change and, and 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 having the entire climate change conversation revolve around eight greenhouse gases and reducing them rather than let have the same conversation but based on the water cycle and suddenly you you're including life in a whole different way and, and you can make it much more specific at watershed by watershed bioregion by bioregion and suddenly the climate change conversation would also be a conversation about food security water security energy security um and re-regionalizing regional economies to a point that we actually build nested resilience and redundancies into our civilization again which we have eroded through globalization because we know we can what well, one thing we can anticipate is that we've got a period of fundamental drastic change coming for the next three, four decades. Some people call it a fundamental collapse of of, um, life as we know it. Uh, um, Nobody really knows how close we are to the point of no return with regard to cascading runaway climate change. Um, Nobody knows even the economic um, chain reactions that have been put in into action by the pandemic um, supply chain problems when that ship yeah. um, was was in the in the canal um, and 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 now the war in Ukraine they, they, we're running towards we're in the middle of cascading collapses and and so what I find so frustrating is that there's a huge amount of goodwill and finance is now being made available but it's flowing in the direction of this kind of um, piecemeal solutions, technological solutions only. And the reality is we need to build social cohesion. We need to build the capacity to collaborate in place again. It, it's, it, there's a lot of soft, warm data that we need to re, um, rejig um, and, yeah. and make, make people aware of in order to find collective responses to this at the scale where we probably will have to respond because so much of our global support system is also likely to um, not survive these changes. Yeah, and what I'm what I'm hearing, or like a, a different way, a topic that I've been thinking a lot about, or, or or trying to be with, is is this of knowing, like how do we know 
anything? Like, how, how do I know that I know? And, and like all of that stuff, all of the nested little nooks and crannies. And, and then what, because I've been working in music and so forth, then there's a certain way of, of knowing, which is very, very much experiential. Like when, when I, I know all the scales, I've done all my runs, I have a certain proficiency and control and mastery over my instrument, which is then my voice, you know, but then as I, as I step into a performance situation, then there's a different type of knowing. It's because I've been there before, I've, I've done the runs and all of that stuff, then I can draw upon and I can sort of exhibit mastery in, in what I'm doing, in the actual performance. I can, I can completely let go of the full control and just be in flow, like stretch myself in ways that I didn't think I could stretch myself, just as a response to the situation, a response to the energy that I'm getting back from the, from the audience and so forth. Mm -hmm. and, and what I'm what I'm hearing or what I'm trying to piece, what I'm piecing together from when you're speaking, it, it sounds like if we are, um, if we accept that we, we don't know on that global level, uh, very few of us at least uh, that, that have that knowledge on the global level and, and have that sort of proficiency and mastery. And so a lot of the time we just end up dealing in ideas and what ifs and so forth, but rather if we can develop it from the bottom up, from the actual local context, then we have to deal with, you know, Sven and, and Carl and, and, you know, so whoever it might be around us and we can develop that proficiency and we can move them, then, then that's an experiential knowing that will then bubble up into the, into these other contracts and then allow us to replicate rather than perhaps, um, scale or just duplicate, you know, or, or I don't know if that's, does that make no, sense? It, as it, a, it makes huge sense, or at least as you were speaking, the, the way I, I was making sense of it for myself, um, is, is the. It, I feel like what you just spoke to very strongly also brings in the um, other ways of knowing that we need to recover as human beings and need to give value to. Because in part of this abstraction process that we were talking about, where does it come from? It comes from a dominant cultural narrative that um, looks for analytic evidence and, and science-based um, statements about a certain idea of reality that, that science is very useful to explore, but it's only coming in through one of the four ways of knowing that Jung described. Um, it's coming in through the thinking pathway of knowing. And then you you create an abstraction of the world based on intersubjective consensus, which is what science is really all about, not about objective um, knowledge. And, and it's enormously powerful and it's enormously useful. But what we're now beginning to see is that that can le lead you into a sort of thinking trap of not perceiving the feedback in, in the wider system that you're part of, life as a planetary process, that says life isn't all about quantities and statistical analysis and p-values. Life is about relationships and war, what Nora Bateson calls warm data. The, the transcontextual um, meaning and relational data that is in every social system, in every ecosystem, that are, like nature itself is this, to use a ter terrible me mechanistic metaphor, supercomputer where all information is stored in the relationships of the biosphere and even beyond the biosphere, the cosmos. Um, and 
intuition, sensing, and feeling, the other three ways of knowing, are participatory embodied ways of drawing meaning and feedback out of that nested wholeness because precisely because we're not separate from it, but we are part of it. So at the heart of the kind of Cartesian dualism that supports the analytical science-based perspective is the denial of the qualitative sensing, feeling, and intuiting that we even now know scientifically is really how we make decisions. We just we make decisions out of our gut feelings, and then we rationalize afterwards with narratives that we've learned in school how why we made the decision. And so, and and, and at at its core, that relates to bringing indigenous knowledge back into our current discourse because our elder brothers, the long lineage of human beings who have demonstrated over 500,000 years that they can be custodians of ecosystems because they understand themselves as emergent properties or expressions of that ecosystem, not the best custodians of that ecosystem, but not not lords and masters and um, owners. That knowledge of relational understanding to a living, breathing planet is is vital for our species' survival um, because only from that knowledge can we generate the wisdom to choose wisely what technologies to use when and where and to understand that what we now call technology, all this sort of hard, hardware-type stuff that allows mm. us then to do software and is, is actually quite primitive compared to the sacred technologies that our species has held over many, many generations, which is people sitting in a circle with a talking stick and speaking from the heart to deep meaning about their relationship between each other and the world. Um, those are the sacred technologies that have enabled humanity to, to stir a path into the future in a, in a volatile, um, unpredictable, and unknowable, ultimately, complex world. And if we don't bring those techniques back into the modern day somehow, um, I think we're, we're, we're literally in a dead end for um, our lack of capacity to use our four ways of knowing and our um, almost dogmatic obsession with analysis and, and um, the thinking mind. Hmm. That's really because it's it. What it sparks in me when you say that is that, I mean, it's not necessarily about, it, it, it's again about some sort of coming into relationship with that um, knowledge uh, rather, rather than, than just um, engaging with the artifacts of it. So it's not so much sort of dressing up as, as a, a you know, tribe of your choice and, and doing the rituals rather, but it's, it's about sort of, it, it might be that to learn and to understand and to come into relationship, but it's, I keep thinking of this uh, the sand talk that Tyson Junker Porto wrote, and which is one mm-hmm. of those books that really, really opened my eyes to something different. Um, mm-hmm. And and then he spoke about these uh, how how the West we Westerners tend to relate, um, which is around sort of uh, if we can come into relationship, like you you need to first respect, and then you need to connect, or you need to connect and then respect, and then you. Um, something else, and then in the end you direct. But it's like just that that shift of of 
how we come into the flow and, and like to being with certain things and to allowing certain things to. But that's what I'm feeling in my own exploration. I mean, I've, I've come from a business background. I come mm. from an entrepreneur. And I've recently, I'm, I'm a very much a newbie in the space of when it comes to sort of even thinking about this, this frame of the regenerative, um, this regenerative frame, it's, it's new to me and, and I'm devouring information uh, around it and, and really trying to understand and really trying to lean into it and so forth. But I get really lost sometimes when it comes to the language because we're talking about design, for instance, which I've had a lot of tension around. I'm like, what does it mean? And then I, I see it, it's used in, in a lot of different ways with a lot of different flavors. And it really depends on from which point of departure or like who is, who is stating the language of design, like who's using that language or even like we're saying the word re regenerative as well. It depends on mm -hmm. who's using it. Like what, what is the placeholder for, um, you know, and, and even ecosystems and even, you know, systemic thinking and all of that stuff. It, these are such um, large terms and it's so difficult to come truly into relationship with them and for, for me to start understanding how they impact and influence my life and thinking, like, what does it actually mean? And then I hear someone like you or I hear Nora Bateson and, and you're just channeling this. And so I'm, I'm sitting, you know, listening to when you speak and then I'm like, okay, I get it. I get it. And then I go out and I meet, you know, whoever on the street and I'm like, it's a completely different world out there. And I try to explain with the same words and it's just confusion. You know, they're like, what do you mean? How is it? I don't understand, you know? And, and so coming back to that initial question of knowing, I don't know, uh, it's, a, it's a little bit of a rambling thing. I'm just trying to think while I'm speaking, which is sometimes not the best way of, less time mm. for thinking. <laughs> but, uh, mm. um, but I'm curious about how do you, I mean, you've been doing this a long time. So I would almost, I, I, would, I would see you as a wisdom keeper for this type of language and thinking, and it's very much embodied in you. I can feel it as a transmission as well when you were speaking. Um, and I'm wondering if, if you would be speaking at the COP or, or like at a con where, where you have this different story, where, where would you start? What is the way into, how do you invite people into this other realm? <laughs> Well, I mean, of course, that's the big question that I've been grappling with for 20 years. Um, and for a long time, I didn't. I just wrote, <laughs> but didn't even try to make sure that people knew that I had written. Uh, it, it took me a long time to realize that, that, that this is maybe an, a bit of advice to all um, people write books and then they get disheartened that nobody's reading them. But there are so many books being written every day, like, uh, like every, every day a book, new books come out. And really the work starts with trying to get the message out there and then realizing that we need to speak to different people in different languages with different like core methods and, and memes, core organizing ideas in order to help them along their own way of understanding. Um, and so I've, I've been trying to find ways to language this and also paying attention to feedback in the system and how, how do people misunderstand the message, which is also quite informative. And, and one, one thing that I noticed that is happening with the term regenerative at the moment is that we fall into the classic pattern that um, we, th we think, okay, I haven't heard of that yet, but more and more people are talking about it. So it's the new thing. And then as it gains momentum, you get hordes of consultants 
opening up a folder called regenerative and closing down the folder um, sustainable, circular, s- smart, lean, and integral, and and saying, okay, now I'm going to sell what's in my regenerative fo- folder and keep filling it, and and that then contributes because people that work in that way tend to say, okay, now I'm hello my normal customers, I'm going to sell you the new now. Um, I know I used to talk sustainability, but I've woken up now. I talk regenerative, and it's precisely that framing that makes us think that everything to do with this is some form of utopian next step into a future we haven't built yet. And while yes, there's a lot of things that we need to redesign and 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 and, and co-create in the in the coming years. If we don't anchor the conversation about regeneration in life itself and in our own history, we make the mistake of getting a lot of people who are now disheartened and don't have a very positive um, outlook on the future to, to say, well, no, fat chance, that's never going to happen. How, how, with, with all these people out there who don't even understand the language yet and don't get it, how are we going to redesign the human impact on earth within the lifetime of the generations of life today in such a way that all of us become healing and regenerative impacts on the social system we're, we're in and allow life as a planetary process to continue. That's a, a massive challenge. But, but if we understand our current predicament as the result of some of humanity taking a detour some eight to 10,000 years ago with agriculture and then what that enabled city-states, empires, power over structures that then enabled a perspective that, that made people feel different from nature because we built all these fancy things that, that we saw as cultural achievements, not as a part of nature creating these things as also natural achievements. And, and so um, I think that this anchoring into our unique capacity to be regenerative because we're part of life is is part of speaking to people um, in in a new way. And and again, um, when the discourse isn't an abstract global discourse on podcasts or or webinars um, or international fora, but it is a discourse of community participation in a community about a bioregion, then of course you, you you very quickly learn how to relanguage the the core intention behind all of this work in ways that it connects with people and it has to do with falling in love with place again, um, getting to know a place again, seeing like the the this little flip of let's work from potential rather than problems. Let's mm. see that each and every one of us has a unique essence to contribute to how we will find the way forward. And part of our challenges that we that, that this work starts in personal development and community capacity development, and then you go out and do the work. It, because otherwise, we just run into, we have no time left, let's do something. Mm-hmm. And if we don't change the quality of being behind the doing, we'll most likely just continue the, the, the same solutioneering that, that was part of the problem in the first place. On, on behalf of the, of, of the mainstream and the current moment, I'm, I would say I'm, I'm offended that you called it a detour. <laughs> 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 it 
10,000 year detour. No, it's yeah, the pinnacle funny. of progress, Daniel. Come yeah, on. It's <laughs> the that, that's the funny thing. It's, it's, it's like life forgives a young species five or 10,000 years of maladaptive behavior in the context of the larger whole that is evolving. But when that species begins to unravel the, th the, the thread of life on so many scales and, and put so many new entities into the environment. We were talking about chemistry earlier. Like it's, it's just incredible what we've done in terms of destructive long-term changes to life's evolution in such a short period of time. And the, the, the thing is we, to lose ourselves in this narrative that humanity is a cancer on the planet and life would be better without us is also oversteering mm. or over um, throwing the pen pendulum. First, we take ourselves at near gods, and then we say, oh, we're not worthy. No, somewhere in the middle is, is, is where we are. We are part of the community of life, and we, because we have the capacity of anticipation and foresight as part of the ecosystems and as part of Gaia, the living planet, giving that capacity of anticipation and foresight to the community of life would enable us to now build the much more re-regionalized structures that can buffer the turbulences that we're, we're moving towards in a way that will definitely be more likely to lead to some of us surviving these, these perturbations than if we keep trying to find global solutions or maintaining the current destructive system for, for any longer. Like they, we need to embrace that the breakdown of those non-regenerative patterns, this, these degenerative patterns is actually a good thing. It's like he, as, as tough as it, it's going to be for, for most of us and also with recognition that it's hitting already so many people in the global South so much harder and they and their ancestors aren't the ones that caused this issue. It's um, so they, 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 it's a very comp complex um, moral issue of how do we do this re-regionalization and building resilience towards the perturbations that are coming at us, climate change and ecosystems collapse and, and economic collapse, in such a way that we enable people everywhere to build that resilience at, at, at their community and bioregional scale. And um, yeah, it's um, the, the thing is, just because it sounds really complex and difficult to initiate, it's, to me, it feels still like the most aligned with the patterns I observe as a biologist and evolutionary biologist on how life has created systems capable of surviving um, change. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's really up to us whether, whether we choose to build those systems or we keep believing that we can become locusts of the known universe by going off planet and harvesting asteroids and, and maintaining the, the kind of exponential tech pathway that even the technologists are saying that's an existential risk to humanity and most likely um, will kill us if we don't regulate AI and regulate exponential tech. Um, so they, they, all of this is, is, is deeply intertwined. And um, 
to some extent, I sometimes wonder whether more breakdown will not accelerate the healing of the system faster, um, which which is a, a difficult thing to say because mm-hmm. breakdown means a lot of suffering for a lot of people and maybe including our, our children and ourselves. Yeah. yeah, it's a tricky, tricky one. Because, I, I mean, one thing that I wanted to kind of underline or double click on is that, I mean, what I'm hearing you speak to is also that the, this solutions narrative, the pinnacle of civilization, like all of that stuff and the global solutions. I mean, that's when the humans, the humans, the, the ordinary people like that, that have names that are around us, that's when we become a problem. So, so in a way, the, this idea that we are the, the cancer and, and we're just growing and so forth. I mean, it, it's also derived from a similar type of thinking that, that, um, um, is, is um, trying to solve it, so to say. And, I'm also curious about because that's one of the things that I'm thinking a lot about these days as well as this this part of the homecoming in the hero's journey. If we if we say that it feels in a way like we are coming home, and I've I felt like I've I've um, dropped a lot of my training and, and dropped a lot of my conventional thinking and so forth, and then I have all these new narratives filling my head, and then when I'm then speaking with my quote unquote old friends or like the friends that I've had for a long time. Um, I become very, it's, it's tricky to, to kind of fit into the mold that it, it becomes a little bit uncomfortable and it's a different perspective. And like we, we, there is a, there's a goodwill there cause we like each other and there is a relationship, but, but at the same time, it's like a little bit of friction in the conversation cause we, we, we don't quite, they don't understand where I'm coming from. And, and I want to, I really want to invite them into this world. And, and I'm thinking a lot about how, how we can do this homecoming. And so like in the, in the, you know, come home with the elixir and like really, really um, do that journey. And then of course I found this, like the Buddhist version of like the 10 ox herding pictures and, and realized that, that um, I'm, I'm too quick. <laughs> I'm too quick. I'm, I'm just about to, I've just forgotten the ox and, mm-hmm. and uh, I have yet to forget myself. And then there's a few more steps before I can come into the market with open hands. So there's a, there's a lot of humility that's needed there and a lot of knowledge, of course, that is, uh, um, but how do you think about this homecoming piece? Is that a, yeah. I think it's, it's at the heart. The, the American poet Gary Snyder, um, who was part of the early American bioregional movement in the 1970s and is still alive today, um, he coined this term re-inhabitation, to re-inhabit. And, and I think that it's very linked to coming home. Um, coming home, my friend um, John Kelly from Integral Institute, uh, Institute for Integral Studies wrote a book called um, Coming Home, where he speaks more about the, the, the kind of cosmic and planetary scale of this. But I think it becomes really beautifully embodied when you try to come home to your local community and your bioregion. When you ask yourself the question, where does my water come from? Where does my energy come from? Where do the products I consume on a daily basis come, come from? And how would, would I, with these daily choices we all make, choose? How, how could I choose to support local farmers who are also custodians of the ecosystem I love because I like going hiking in the mountains or swimming on, on the beaches of, of this island? Um, it's, it's the homecoming is the really seeing the specific in front of us again and and rather than letting media and and 
social media and, and information technology constantly maintain us in a disembodied kind of global situation without actually having the time anymore to meet our neighbors, to, to talk to the parents that the, of, of the kids that our um, children go to school with, to, to build um, real human relationships between those people, because ultimately that's, that's how we co-create as takes a village to raise a child, um, how we co-create the next generation's outlook on life. And so um, for me, it's so vital, this, this coming home into the specificity again. And it is at the, at the heart of how we can work regeneratively, um, as we start, said at the beginning. Like it, the homecoming is a homecoming to the unique people and the unique place and the unique bioregion that, that we find ourselves in and actually live our embodied lives in. It's, it's so tempting to think that that's not important because we can have Zoom calls with people all over the planet. But, um, but I, I think we're, we're really losing out on our own agency unfolding its maximum potential when, when we try to do that. And of course, it's a both and. Um, it's, I mean, this, it's this, like when you asked the question earlier about global and local, like and I've, I've worked a lot with guy education and a number of institutions that have picked up this term that I think might have come out of a project we did here on the island, um, in 2014, global, um, like rejoining the global and the local as something that, that we begin to understand that everything you do in your local community and your bioregion that is healing the capacity of life to create conditions conducive to life is ultimately also healing the planet. And by doing that nested healing, well, that feeds back on our population health and our individual health. So, so it's, it's this paradox that um, we're all always in every second with our thoughts, words, and actions changing the future. And we're doing so locally. Um, locally and globally mm. yeah yeah and there's something for for taking the time to invest the time in actually communing if you will if that's an activity but but um also realizing it here as i'm out of my old community old friends and so forth and uh, having to invest time into actually rebuilding new relationships and new strong bounds here and also understanding the cultural context even though i mean it's still a nordic Nordic country. I'm born and raised in Sweden, moving to Iceland. So and I, I have some of the language, but to understand and, and to really lean into it and, and like get the context, if you will, and, and also where we're coming from. I mean, it's very, very different. An island, I mean, Sweden has a few hundred years of, of sort of affluence or, or like a journey into affluence, whereas mm-hmm. Iceland has much, much less given that they had a, you know, it's, it's really during the second world war that they came into, into some sort of material wealth uh, mm-hmm. and population and so forth. Yeah, I mean, but that's that's exactly that process of of getting to know a place. Sometimes it's I'm I don't live where I was born, um, but I'm and I'm now twelve years into that journey of of coming home to this place. And what I'm realizing more and more is, for example, here on the island of Mallorca, I, I, because I already speak Spanish, English, and German, and those are languages that are very much in use on this island. Um, and I can pretty much speak to everybody in Spanish or those other two languages. I've 
I neglected re learning the local language, which is Mallorquin, a form of Catalan. Um, yeah. And I'm now realizing that that it's not a small thing. Like that was a real mistake um, because there's a level of homecoming that that it will forever be closed if I don't also open to the the songs and stories and and fairy tales of this land in the language of this land um, because it. It opens up like a fractal. You suddenly you begin to realize that the name of a place, when you speak the local language, is informative rather than just something <laughs> that that you repeat. Eh? Yeah. And um, yeah, that's it's it's a wonderful journey. But it's also what you were speaking to earlier: the the finding oneself in the company of old friends and realizing. I don't actually like making conversation about a topic that I've just picked off the news or mass media yesterday in order to have an intellectual conversation at a meeting of friends. Like if if I if my whole body and being doesn't resonate with this issue, if it just becomes a talking point in order to sound clever, um, I often find myself with old friends in, in, in circles where I kind of go, Neither you nor I, none of us are expert on whatever, wine. And and now you're having an argument about wine. And everybody's <laughs> trying to pretend they know something about it. And kind of going, we're friends. Can we not talk about something more interesting than that? Yeah. But but yeah, it's it's a lonely road when, when you when you start to see how urgently we need to change our ways and you realize how many people are so busy in their day-to-day -day running that they don't even have the time to um, press pause and, and take a second-order observation on their own thinking and how they're participating in the system. Um, it's, a, it's a failure of our education system. It's, it's a result of this industrial growth society that keeps us running. And um, I mean, I think you probably live that as becoming a father as well. I find that that having... Children is, is a wonderful way of, of actually becoming more compassionate again with people who are um, just making ends meet and running in, in the daily treadmill and and um, retreating into a kind of as long as my children are fed in school and, and we're sort of halfway okay, mm -hmm. that's about as much as I can take responsibility for and all the rest, I, I'm already overloaded. Um, I, I have hugely more compassion to, like, I remember that the day my, Two days after my daughter was born, I first stepped out of the, the, the hospital and started walking a street again briefly because I had to get something from home. And everybody looked different. Suddenly, everybody was somebody's daughter or somebody's son or somebody's parent. And, um, and that was a coming home as well, like coming back home into the human community and, and being more compassionate with with a vast amount of people out there who aren't privileged enough to have the level of privilege we two, we both have but in terms of education and and everything so we can have these kind of conversations but we all have to take our our bit so we will we'll have those conversations for them hopefully in a way that that actually ultimately serves um in a in a way that it also feeds back on 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 those people, and and that's what again, that's why 
coming home is is becoming aware how important citizenry and and active participation in local community actually is um, in all of this. Yeah, that's interesting because I have a friend of mine who's been he's in in the U.S. but he's recently decided to move home to the little village where he was was born and like they they have sort of four or five generations I think um, that has been there and and all of them have been important community members and. And one of the things that he's made me realize is that it's not about necessarily what you say, but it's about what you do. And so like how you actually operate and move in the world, this is the, the key point. It, I, is, you know. it is, but I want to just highlight something there because one of the things that I find is, a, is another false dualism that has actually been really, really counterproductive is this false dualism of dividing people into... Um, practitioners and theoreticians or thinkers and doers um, because so much of what we've just already talked about is, is that there is if you change some core organizing ideas that are to do with the relationship between the individual and its world or the individual commu- towards community or life in general mm-hmm. the, the shift from a kind of pathogenic treating symptoms approach to health mm-hmm. to a salutogenic health as a continuous process of learning and 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 dynamically stirring towards an une- unexpected and unpredictable and, and uncontrollable future these are meta design shifts shifts in words seemingly that as they percolate through culture actually reframe how we participate in it. Like a very concrete example, when I wrote my PhD in 2006, um, I realized that sustainability was a wanting, wanton term, like it didn't tell us what we were trying to sustain. So I asked myself the question, what's behind that? And ultimately got to like Heraclitus, the, the, the patterns that connect uh, the, the, the stronger patterns, mm-hmm. the hidden connections are the stronger connections. And then I say, well, what are these hidden connections? What are what do they build? And, and that, that's when I realized that one really good frame to put us back into the wholeness we're participating in is linked in the English language. Wholeness and holy and health have the mm-hmm. same root. We need to come home to this awe-inspiring, enchanted, sacred cosmos again. But we also need to understand that our health is just an expression of health as a property of a nested complex dynamic system, if you want to use scientific language. And therefore, healing the planet or healing our ecosystems heal, heals ourselves. And, and what I experienced in my own life is that, that when I wrote that PhD in 2006, I, I was in a design school and the designers saw me as other. Oh, he's got a background in science. He's not one of us. And what the hell is he talking about with planetary health? Mm-hmm. And now, only what uh, came out in 2006, so we're talking 15, 16 years later, the UK Design Council since last year is running under the theme of Design for Planet. They just had a Design for Planet festival where I had the opportunity to talk to a wonderful man called Puran Desai who inspired me 20 years ago to go deeper into bioregionalism. And we were reflecting on, like he was interviewing me about my work, and, and I just suddenly realized, wait a minute, this is actually an example of mimetic shift here. 
like suddenly the design world is thinking in terms of designing for planet and and they're beginning to understand health and they're beginning to suddenly be interested in this notion of salutogenic design health generating design and so so basically the the, the point i was trying to make with with this is let's watch out not to make too much of a division between theory and practice because we need new ways of thinking about this because they are ultimately what inform how we show up and how we practice. Yeah. 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 And I, I, I mean, I can see the same shifts in the, in the petrochemicals industry where mm. we've spent the last 10 years. I mean, there is an, an, an enormous shift in the type of variables that we are um, looking at at least for new product design. And so I, it's getting very interesting. It's still cynical in a way. It's still on a communications level and, and there's, a, there's a, a lot of emphasis being put on very small volumes and so forth, but it's still changing and it's shifting and the evaluations are these, the new scorecards and so forth like that are being put out contain completely different variables than they would have uh, just five years back. And, and so it's a shift that I wouldn't have thought um, could happen that fast. Um, yeah, I think the next stage, because it's happening in, in so many industries, like the other day I was just um, driving home and listening to Radio Radio Tres, which is a, one of the best national radio stations here in, in Spain. And not only, like in, in just about an hour, first there was a program where somebody was reflecting in a sort of narrator storytelling way about coming to a new school where they were teaching everything through the school garden and 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 how amazing it was that she was teaching, learning maths through um, mm. doing, um, growing vegetables. And how, how, how she, those are beautiful sentences. And now even eight years later, I can't think of maths without getting the color green and a lush feeling around me. And, and, and yeah. be, be, beautiful. But, but this is stuff that 20 years ago at Schumacher College, we were talking about, Fritjof Kapra set up the Center for Eco-Literacy and said you can teach through school gardens. But it wasn't on national tele, uh, radio stations to have these conversations. And then 20 minutes later, there's an interview with a guy who is into urbanism and, and redesigning our cities and, and bringing nature back into the cities. And they were talking about real examples of Madrid and the Manzanares River and rewilding it and how suddenly there were birds in the center of Madrid again that, that didn't. And again, this guy was talking about porous pavings. And, and I thought, oh, yeah, wonderful. 15, 16 years ago, I was writing little permaculture articles for a Spanish newspaper of, uh, or magazine around all these issues. And we were the kind of fringe crackpots that, that <laughs> were um, talking about a better world. And now it's on national uh, uh, radio. Uh, and the third, third example, um, I remember when I was more into the sort of futures and scenario planning and, and, and foresight work and, and, and worked for the UK government for their, their, their foresight department, um, I was scanning future technologies and I remember having a few slides around the future of air traffic and the coming back of zeppelins and, and large airships. Yeah? Well, I live on the island of Mallorca. The other day I opened up the newspaper and from 2026, there will be a direct line between Barcelona and Mallorca with a, with a new generation zeppelin. Uh, <laughs> um, so so, so the, what, what I'm saying is, is, is like this, what seems like, either just talking about solutions but not implementing them, still it, it takes time for these things to percolate into culture. And and when it does, it, it changes everything. Uh, I mean, the cogito ergo sum 
was was just just an intellectual thought, but it was somebody sitting in an oven who had fought for years in the Reformation War between Catholics and Protestants, had seen that there was no terra firma anymore in the world because suddenly there were two Bibles, mm. the, the Protestants and the Catholic one. And that's why Descartes wrote the Discourse on Method, to reestablish a new ground on which we can meet and do things. But it was a ground of abstraction. And it unleashed a powerful evolution of science and technology and, and did many things that, if we used them wisely, would create a better world for, for more people. But at some point we got lost. And now it's time to, um, because we, we are back again in a time where now science is being put into question because science has lost the opportunity to distinguish between what science is and what scientism is. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately we have a lot of scientism now, like a dogmatic preaching down at, oh, you don't understand, we're the scientists, and, and people will rebel against it. Uh, but um, how do we create that new terra firma? And I think it is very much based on remembering the original instructions that our indigenous um, elders around the world still hold, but not in a way that is a sort of hawking back to some, uh, we all need to, as you were sort of saying earlier, choose what to don on and dance around the fire. We, no, we, we need to bring these rituals and this wisdom meaningfully into the 21st century and then have a conversation around how to wisely use technology. Um, and, and I think that conversation also needs to be global. It needs to, on the one hand, be very much with sensitivity to people in place, but we do need global regulation on, on runaway technologies. Otherwise, um, we're, we're building a regenerative, decentralized future, while at the same time there are processes that are working for a highly centralized, AI-controlled um, dystopia where we follow that narrative of, oh, yeah, we're just a cancer on the planet. We need evidence based that is better than our human brain is capable of. Therefore, we let AI make the decisions for us and ultimately are blind to the fact that whoever controls that AI therefore also controls us. And even the, the belief that AI can be controlled once it's unleashed is, is, is another very dangerous one. I, I don't know if this puts us, because I, I want to round off as well, but, but there is this word that I heard you use and I, I was exposed to a couple of days ago just for the first time, which I really liked, and that was ecozoic. Mm-hmm. And, and it was new to me. And, and I heard you speak related to the Anthropocene versus the Ecozoic. And, and it seems like we're in, in some way, and I'm sure I'm not misunderstanding a lot of the nuances of, of, of that, um, but it seems like we're, we're roughly around there. And I wanted to kind of just introduce it as, a, as an optional, as another term for our times. Yeah, um, it's, it comes from Thomas Berry, who... Um, made it his life work as a, as a, as a Catholic priest to um, heal that seeming rift between science and uh, science spirituality and, and uh, no, between science and spirituality or science and religion. Mm -hmm. And um, so he working with physicists like Brian Swim and other biologists like Elizabeth Satoris um, 
worked on retelling the universe story and then the story of life on Earth from a scientifically founded narrative, but in such a way that it really brings the awe and the, the magnificence of that story back into people's awareness. Mm. And and he coined that term ecozoic because, I mean, of course, our collective actions have destabilized um, the climate in such a way that we're now out of this 10,000 years of relatively low fluctuation period that, interestingly enough, seems to have been pretty much matched to the evolution of whales and the disappearance of whales. We, we think it's all about how we um, have ex exploited fossil fuels from the ground once we discovered oil and coal. But actually before that, when we started um, to kill the world's whales for the early way of lighting cities with whale oil, mm. we actually killed the biotic pump that brought nutrients from the deep ocean back to the upper ocean and basically started to erode ocean health um, even before the Industrial Revolution or the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And so, so it's, it's re-remembering these, these large interferences that, that, that we've created in, in this evolutionary story of life and then saying, okay, how would we, like if we call this the Anthropocene, um, to highlight, oh, look at this, we're now so powerful, we affect the future of life on Earth and even geological patterns as like a geological force. We're, we're creating a, a geological layer that is humanity was here. Um, well, it most likely will be was here if we keep using framing that, that puts the human at the center of it. And, and so there's somehow a continuation of our pride in technology and our anthropocentrism to call this period the Anthropocene. And so I, I, I am not, while again, the people from the Stockholm Resilience Center and the people that, that came up with this did so in the best of intentions to highlight that we're beyond planetary boundaries and all those kinds of issues. I think the, the linguistic framing that we use is really important. And, and the Ecozoic is, speaks about us, like made, human beings re-entering into the regenerative patterns of life itself to become, come home to stay with the theme um, into the community of life again as custodians of life. And so, so I find it is it's a powerful. Um, some so other people have called it the the, the symbiocene. Um, Glenn Albrecht, an Australian philosopher, um, calls it the symbiocene, which is also quite a nice name. But um, it's the, the main point I was making in that conversation and also in that article I've got on Medium, which is called Leaving the Anthropocene, is that let's watch out. Like we were starting to actually fall in love with this term, the Anthropocene, mm. rather than say that's the great aberration and we need to get out of the Anthropocene as quickly mm. as possible and start stepping into the Ecozoic. So yeah, glad you brought it up. It's, a, it's, a, it's an important reframe. Mm. Thank you. Um we're we're coming to an end, unfortunately. <laughs> and um, is there is there something else that uh, that holds your curiosity at the moment that that I haven't that we haven't touched on? I mean, we've been along a, a quite specific path. Yes. Well, one thing that uh, we could now start a whole another ninety minute conversation yeah. because we've actually come from that industry is so it's related to your earlier question of how how, how do I get to these people that 
actually are friends and there is goodwill, but they're just not really <laughs> wanting to even have the conversation yet. And so I, over the last few years, have more and more understood that if we're talking about how do we stimulate the emergence of this regenerative impulse that is in all life, in communities and place? How do we invite people into this amazing, fascinating creative process where we can meet each other and our places in new ways again, fall in love with our communities and our places again, and ask the question, how would we create a regenerative custodian culture in this place? And and take our responsibility for planetary healing and the the, the mistakes of our parents and grandparents with regard to destroying so much mm-hmm. um, by healing this place and enabling other people to heal their place and in, in other places. I, I'm beginning to realize that the core of that cultural shift will be about the poets, the dancers, mm-hmm. the musicians, the songwriters, the fine artists, the sculptors, the playwrights, beginning to not language the story of separation, like, oh, there's a dangerous universe out there, Ill, ill-willed, and we need to survive and fight for survival and all, all that kind of BS, but to actually begin to write songs again about how amazing it is to to be part of a living universe and how amazing it is to co-create um, meaningful futures, not just for our children, but with our children. And and so for, for me, that's that's one of my growing edges. How do we get the, the musical industry and <laughs> the artists and all the creative practitioners um, involved in the regeneration rising? And uh, I think they're slowly getting there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree fully. And, and I think that's interesting because it's, Speaking of these different ways of knowing that we that you brought in before with with Jung, or and, and then there's also the different languages that we have. I mean, now we're using we're using a lot of we're spending a lot of words doing this thing, and then you speak to. Uh, we I have an exploration where I'm facilitating a group of artists at the moment and trying to understand how do we allow the language of art into transformative contexts or events or whatever it mm-hmm. might be, not in order to anything, but just how do we allow it in? How do we, how do we invite it in a way so that's an integral part of the exploration that we are doing? And, and of course there, you know, art is one language and, and with all of its modalities and then silence is a different language with all of its modalities. And, and there are all these different ways that we have, there's a possibility of, as well as there are different ways of understanding things, there's a different way of being together as well. And, and so to just also sit around that fire in silence without doing exercises, without any, you know, skillfully facilitated anything, but just with the space and the darkness and the sounds of nature and, and the stars. Mm. I mean, this is, um, something happens, something shifts and something opens. And then, yeah, it's valued less because we can't put words to it later. Or, or you know, you might have to write it in a poem. Uh, that's, that'd be the closest thing. And there, there we are again. Absolutely. No, that's it's for me part of recovering our capacity to be regenerative culturally, like uh, in our tribe, in our context, in our society, is about finding new ways to recover ancient 
ritual spaces, about rites of passage, about deep listening, about allowing that um, that core pattern that, like, if you in every indigenous tradition around the world, you find in, it's expressed differently, but you find this friend of mine um, calls it the triethica. Um, this this triple question of with every meaningful decision and important decision that affects the future, which most decisions do, does it serve myself? Does it serve my community? And does it serve life? And it's beautiful because it also reminds us that the first question is not an evil or ego-invested, self-absorbed question. It, it, taken from the right space and without forgetting that you have to ask the other two questions importantly too, the first question becomes a how do I serve myself and build my capacity to be continuously of service to my community and life? So, so paying attention to myself is not a egotistical, I must think of me first. No, it's I understand that I can only be of long-term service of my community, my family, or life, life as a whole if I maintain my capacity to be of service, and therefore I also need to serve myself. And a lot of activists burn out because they feel somehow that it's not okay to ask that question but but it is precisely these like the way of counsel sitting around the fire with a talking stick um it doesn't need facilitation it just needs an enabling constraint to say we're going to listen to each other we're not going to have a cacophony of voices we're going to let the fire hold the silence and the crackling and the stars and the wider our ancestors behind us and the future generations before us. And now we speak from the heart and listen from the heart. And suddenly everything transforms. Um, similarly, going out into nature and spending even only 24 hours under the stars in a little solo time, little mini vision quest, is so important. Um, and and it is, as we recover a generative culture, I think we need to bring that back to the youth and, and, and to everybody. And that's the easy way to speak to everybody. In those moments, not, not facilitated, just creating the, the sacred container that, that creates the morphic resonance that makes people understand that we've been doing this since we called ourselves human, even since before we called ourselves human. And, and with that, we we reconnect with what actually now wants to come through us, which is life saying, change your ways. Or <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Is there, um, where can people find you if you want them to find you? <laughs> I'm one of these strange people who, <laughs> I think for the last three or four years, my, my website's been down. Um, and when people try to find it, um, it, it tells them better don't click on that. It might be <laughs> corrupted. Um, so at some point there will be a website again, which is um, Um But at the moment it is there isn't one. Um, but I have about 550 articles and, and excerpts from my book and my PhD and my master's thesis on Medium. So just putting my name, Daniel Christian Wahl in Medium is, is a source of information. And then I also have a YouTube channel. Um, so if you put my name in YouTube, you'll, you'll find it. Um, actually, the uh, Ecosia search engine, if you put my name in, there'll, there'll be plenty of ways. <laughs> like there, there are a lot of things that come up because I 
have a lot of conversations with people like you. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll link to a few of them in the, uh, in the show notes as well. Mm -hmm. so thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate this conversation. And, it's, uh, and thank you for doing this because it is, this is like, again, to hammer home that one point, for all those who are listening, you've, we, the conversation that we just had and the listening that they will be engaged in in the future has agency. It is changing the world. It's not, oh, I'm just sitting here and consuming and, and then I have to go out and do. Um, because through this relational, dialogical way of making sense and meaning together, the two of us just now and people listening and relating to what we've just talked about in the future, we're actually shifting the, the meta design, these mental scaffolding, the organizing ideas that inform culture uh, towards more regenerative patterns again. So um, we've just changed the world a little bit. Yay, wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much. You. Keep up the good work. 